2: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues performs at Ram's Head on stage tonight in Annapolis, Maryland. The progressive rock icon joined me and colleague Dave Preston for a pair of conversations first in 2016. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, sir.
3: Oh, great pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Jason and Dave. Yeah, nice to talk to you.
4: I'm doing things from most of the albums, you know, down through the years. I hope there's something there for everybody. I got some new music. Uh, I got a completely new song and uh, put some new songs uh, different that songs into the set as well um you know I, I i hope there's something there for everybody i think so anybody who likes this music
1: justin i gotta ask you about nights in white satin i heard in an interview that it was about bed sheets and i guess who could have thought a song about sheets would become such a standard well i, I wish
4: I, I wish i could say the whole song was about sheets <laughs> but, uh, i think it was the you know, I was 19 years old, and it was the the, the, the thoughts of a of a 19-year-old boy who was... I was at the end of one big love affair at the beginning of another. And that, that was pretty important in my life. But also, a girl had given me some white satin... Another girlfriend had given me some white satin sheets. And uh, terribly romantic, but a bit impractical. But I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that song. And every time I sing it, you know, I... I, I I appreciate what the audience brings to it. You know, the magic that the that the crowd brings to it. And um, it, it was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful thing for us in the group. It defined our sound. And it's it's lovely. There's another song I do called Forever Autumn, which was a solo thing for me. But nights and forever autumn, you can go anywhere in the world. And even if they don't know who you are, they'll kind of know the song, which is lovely.
2: Yeah, and I know. I know during the band's uh, heyday, you had you know at least four of you guys writing different songs. Um, what what sort of I guess the best part, and then also the challenges of having so many creative engines all firing at the same time.
4: Well, there was a, there was a lot of um, testosterone flying around in the early days. <laughs> I came to the group as a songwriter, and Mike Prinder uh, was also writing songs, and he was the brought, one who brought me to the group. And I think he he thought that we should. You know, try and get our own songs into the group because originally it was a rhythm and blues group. But I think I think it worked out well for us. It gave us an identity, and we were very lucky to be with a label in London Records and Decca that didn't have an A and R guy standing over us telling us what to do and insisting that we make singles. And that's always been my rule of thumb ever since. You know, every label that I've been with, solo and Moody's, I've made sure that we can do what we think is right and trust our own judgment.
1: Justin, not only uh, individual songs that you've written over the years, but uh, the Moody Blues were a group defined more by great albums, and instead of uh, 10 three-minute songs, it was kind of, I guess, best experienced by a a 30-minute movement. Uh, And not just that, but just the visual look of the album covers, from Days of Future Past to Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. It, they stick with you visually and uh, orally. What uh, What was, the, I guess, the key to making those LPs work the way they did within the group?
4: Well, we w- we were very lucky. I mean, the, the, the first album was an idea of the record companies. It was meant to be a demonstration record to demonstrate stereo. But it coincided with the birth of um, FM radio in America, which was, and it was recorded so beautifully by Decca. After that, I think we realised that we wanted to make it a whole kind of audiovisual experience, and um, the sleeves were very important to us. The, the whole design of it, the whole look of it, and uh, it, it was it was a complete kind of follow through, really. Um, we were lucky to be part of that era and that generation where that was possible. I think for young boys and girls now, you know, they have, they got one shot, they give you a song and um, you, you've got to grab it straight away. Otherwise, you know, they don't get many second chances. Also, we were a great live band and we, you know, that's always been the thing that stood us in good stead. And so... That's why I'm out here now. I enjoy it on the road. I enjoy presenting these songs. And if you can create a little magic in a room, I think that'll make all the difference in the world.
1: Justin, I've seen you guys live, but when you're with Graham and John Lodge nowadays, there seems to still be this incredible musical kinship between you and John. You guys joined the band together. You uh, did uh, the Blue Jays album together as well. What's it like to have a running mate like that all these years later?
4: I think I think it's the three of us. I I wouldn't say there's any two. I think you know Graham is a, is a is a big important part now, and he's a you know a wise kind of head. And for me, it was Mike Pinder who brought me to the group. I think we're we're with the three guys now who really like to do it on stage. That's the thing with with myself and Graham and John. But we we want It's a big catalogue. We want to rediscover that catalogue. So we're, we're lucky to have each other, you know, uh, and um, we're we're enjoying it. It's a it's a real pleasure for us. We're very lucky.
1: Two more questions. First, we can't leave Ray Thomas out of this. Uh, not only the snazziest dresser I think with the group back in the day, but also the best dancer on stage, <laughs> bar none.
4: Um. Okay. <laughs> That's
1: funny, yeah. No, there's this vi- there's this uh, video, the video from Color Me Pop. You guys are singing Ride My Seesaw, and he doesn't right. have an instrument to play, so he's snapping and jazzing and doing whatever you do <laughs> when you don't have an instrument. Uh, okay. It's gr-
2: <laughs> it's awesome. We got to kick out watching that video. Anyway, all right, final question. You know, they just had the Rock Hall a couple weeks ago. Great bands getting in, Cheap Trick, Chicago, uh, NDWA and Steve Miller and some others, but there's a lot of people clearing for you, you guys to be included. Uh, what are your thoughts on that one?
4: Well, I, you know, I, I live in Europe, so the, it's kind of annoying for European people that the Americans <laughs> think they've got that the, the, they should have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, <laughs> it should be a kind of world thing. Right. But I, I know that it, it impacts the, the Moody's fans and people who love the music very much, and that they want it to happen so bad. I think it's going to be tough for the people who do the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now, because... Uh, You know that that all the groups they've kept out for so long, it would be like an admission of guilt if they let them in now.
2: Right. uh, Right.
4: I kind of feel they should have closed the door after the Eagles anyway, so, uh, <laughs> you know.
2: Thanks so much for are generous with your time.
4: Uh, oh, it's great. Lovely talking to you guys. All the best. Thank you, sir. Cheers.
2: We spoke to Hayward again in 2018 after the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're on solo tour here after being on tour with the Moody Blues last summer, and of course, big year with the Rock Hall and everything too, but what sort of freedom do you feel doing these solo tours as opposed to the, you know, the band?
3: I'm able to do a lot of things, th- songs that I was never able to do with the band. Deeper kind of album cuts that Moody Blues fans will know. Will know. Of course, I'm able to do solo things, and I get to do "Forever Autumn," that was a, the, a big hit for me. And um, it's uh, and, and I do that, you know, the hits with the, that, that that I had with the Moody's. So that's great as well. But um, I think it, I'm playing these songs. I'm really rediscovering these songs for the first time. Like I said, I've not played most of this set I've never played on stage before, either because they didn't work or just because there was other things... You know that uh that that we're uh, in in the in a in a moody set, and it's a real joy for me i, I hope there's something there for everybody i do i I think so and yeah. I tell the stories behind the songs and what was happening sixties seventeen 80s, you know nineties that kind of stuff. you remember that
1: far back <laughs> i
3: know, hey i I know I was there in the sixties <laughs> I've seen the pictures and I'm in them but uh, my mind was just elsewhere chemically and emotionally sometimes.
1: <laughs> Justin, Nights in White Satin remains a standard over 50 years later. At what point did you have any idea that it would be more than just the group's next single? Because it, it, every song just begins with you putting pen down on paper. At what point did you realize it would be something special uh, that it's become?
3: It, it took a few years. Of course, it wasn't the single that was released in America at the time. They It, it, it was uh, Tuesday afternoon. Thankfully, because Tuesday afternoon became a great kind of radio hit, because I think Tuesday fitted the radio format at the time better. Um, But nights was a very long, slow kind of thing. Um, It had some success for other people, actually, after we'd recorded it, and uh, most notably in in France, where other people's, uh, France and Italy, where other people's versions of it were hits. But it slowly kind of caught on and just stayed around for ages. And in 1973, um, we had an album out, I think it was called Seven Sojourn, and the record company were desperately trying to sell that record and suppress Nights. And the more they tried to suppress it, the more it just got bigger. And DJs started playing it and getting hold of it, and that's when it finally reached the top of the charts. Right when the record company didn't want it to, you know,
0: it's a curious
3: (laughs) thing, but it's always from the heart and uh, Mike Pinder and his Mellotron contribution, you know, and his arrangement can never be underestimated. And, you know, I just had the two, two verses. I came home from a gig one night, wrote the two verses, but it was Mike with his Mellotron that made the sound of it happen.
2: Now, Nights and Whites and obviously probably the most iconic, but th- there were a bunch, Wildest Dreams, Forever Autumn, Tuesday Afternoon, but um, I'm sure you're asked about all those so many times. Is there is there a song that you wish you were asked more about, like a hidden gem that in your own mind you were like, that's, my, that's one of my best damn ones and no one asked me about it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> there was a song called Watching and Waiting. I actually do it in my solo set, but we've never done it with the Moody's. It just, you know, the mood is, was always kind of two groups. It was the recording group that was recorded in a particular way um, with acoustic guitar up front, some spoken word. And then there was the touring group that for many years was like 2,000 watts and loud drums. And sometimes some things just didn't work uh, as, as you took them between those two um, uh, kind of... Uh, shades and personalities but um there was a song called watching and waiting that was our first single on the on our own threshold label that we put out and we all believed and particularly me and graham and mike really believed in it that this would be the one you know and it sold out and came about came out and sold about 10 my mum bought it in the sum of her pals and that's about it but over the years, it's become a favorite, and when I do it on stage now, it's, it's a lovely kind of warm feeling, and I, I'm, I'm very pleased because I've never done it before. After all of these years, that was since 1969, so um, 50 years later, people really got their heads around it.
1: During your career, Justin, you played in all sorts of stadiums, Isle of Wight, venues of all sizes. What does a club like the Birchmere do for you as a performer? What do you enjoy about that intimate setting?
3: Uh, I I love it. I've been there a couple of times before, and it's always a pleasure. I mean, I'm able to tell in a big situation – you're not able to talk very much. But I love, you know, people are interested in the stories behind the songs. And I tell the stories of the time, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, all the way through. And and what was happening at the time, the stories around the songs, how they came about. And, of course, this is the way that I intended these this is the way i made the demos of all of these songs this is the way they were at home when i wrote them and that's what i'm present what well, that's what i'm able to present at a place like the birchmere and um you know if when we do bigger places maybe i get a bigger um outfit you know i've been asked to to do bi- bigger places but i, I don't want to get real loud just yet because i'm enjoying this particular way of doing these songs so much and the musicians that I'm with and the little crew that I have uh, the the guys boys and girls that are with me are just so great and I want to keep this group together
2: awesome now Justin one of the cool things about you you are the proverbial triple threat you know you can you're a singer you're a guitarist you're also a songwriter when you sit down and actually go to pen the song as a songwriter you Do you find that that your inclination is that you're writing it sort of, you know, lyrically to sing or more? Are you first thinking writing it for yourself as a guitarist?
3: It usually comes out. That's a that's a good question, because it's a mystery to me still. And it's a mysterious thing, songwriting. And I'm not sure. I don't know what my life would be like without song, without these songs and without songwriting. It's a kind of place to go. And Picasso said, "Inspiration has to find you working." So I find if I go into my room and actually devote time to it, something magical will happen. It's just that I'm so lazy, you know, that I don't I don't do it a lot of the time. But usually, yes, it'll come out of a guitar, a guitar rhythm that'll suggest something, and it'll spark some kind of. I know it sounds, uh, I know it sounds pretentious, but it sparks some kind of cinematic experience in your mind and suddenly it reveals itself in, in a kind of um, picture, pictural way and in a landscape and either at the keyboard or the guitar, that'll reveal itself and lead you through it. You just need to kind of make that first step into that landscape and uh, then it reveals itself.
1: We're speaking with Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. Congratulations, Justin, on getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this past year. What did you take away from the whole induction experience uh, this past spring?
3: Um, Well, you know, I'm so pleased for the Moody Blues fans. It's validated the music that they love. And, and to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, they created a temple to the kind of everything that's turned me on ever since I was a little kid. And so that's great. Um, the experience itself, you, you know, I, we were in our little presentation, we were quite ordered. And we talked about, you know, let's be concise, clear and, and do it properly and just do our thing. And that's it. Some people, man, they went on for like 45 minutes and somebody was standing in there and then in 1982 ooh, I did that and I thought oh my god you know and we looked at each other and said he's only got to 1982 <laughs> so it it is um it's like a lot of these hall of fame things you see with the football players as well you know they take an opportunity to ramble on for hours but it was it was extremely long but um I, I thought I, I certainly enjoyed our bit, but yeah. uh, and it is a great pleasure. I have to I live in Europe, so I have to explain it to people <laughs> there. You know what it is. <laughs>
2: yeah, but it's they didn't get the memo. Ramble On was a different group. Uh, no, yeah. but you know, you've been with. The, <laughs> I mean, you've been with um, you've been with the Moody Blues over fifty years. But seriously, most groups are lucky to last fifty months, if not fifty days. Sometimes, what's been the key for you, John Lodge, Graham Edge, just continuing this journey? together for
3: five freaking decades. I think it's because we were never kind of celebrities or, um, you know, we didn't even have a publicist in the early days. And I don't think we smiled in a photograph until, or nobody told us to smile in a photograph until about 1978. And I think we just went our own way, that's all, and did our own thing. And I've been lucky as a writer and as a performer to never have to have always been with labels that have just said to me, just do what you want. It's just fine by us. And, uh, so, you know, it's it's uh, stood or fallen by, by that rule, really. We just went our own way, and we were very lucky. That's turned out to be the best thing we could have done.
1: One of the unheralded, uh, you know, figures in the history of the Moody Blues, uh, former producer, the late Peter Knight, uh, I can imagine with Five Guys writing and, you know, all the personalities uh, going from... Concept to concept album for him. It was almost like herding cats, you know, trying to get everything in gear What just what was the process like going from concept to concept album? Because when you look at uh, the albums, especially everyone talks about the core seven the, the whole was really greater than the sum of the parts of the individual songs Justin.
3: That's right I think um... Uh, I, I, I think that, I mean, Peter was on the first album and then he became a family friend of mine. And then we went on to do other things together, which were wonderful. And I, I, I think there was never a problem. Sometimes the theme of the album came later and it came after, um, you know, uh, after the music had been recorded and then you put something together. Sometimes Graham Edge's spoken word things would come first and he would suggest an idea which would spark the rest of us. So um, it usually came like that. And then everything kept, sort of came together. Sometimes it was even Phil Travers in the sleeve that would he would start working on some ideas after listening to, he would listen to my demos and stuff like that. And then um, he would start working on something and sometimes his sleeve would spark it. It was a, an interesting process. It was never the same twice. But I do say that Graham and his spoken word things had a lot to do with it.
2: Awesome. Well, you've been more than generous with your time. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. This, this was that, we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, so thank you.
3: Oh, Jason, thank you. Thank you, Dave, as well. Lovely to talk to you. My love to you, and look forward to seeing everybody.
1: Lovely to talk to you again, my friend.
3: Take care. Cheers. Bye.
2: Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.